You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading today is from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodai, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading today is actually from 2 Timothy chapter 3, not 1 Timothy uh, and it's the entire chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, Without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth." Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be the plain to all, as as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we would see you. 
We must see you. Far too often we come thinking what we need is a little self-improvement. What we primarily need is emotional healing or to feel good. But God, we must see you. So God, as we gather now in your presence, as we open your word, I pray, Father, that we would, by your spirit, through the work of Jesus, as you have spoken to us in this book, that we would see you. And seeing you, God, that we would be changed. In your name we pray, amen. We arrived today, um, as we've been journeying through the, the step-by-step process of worship, and what, um, how does the Bible shape and instruct and define um, the, the nature of Christian worship, but we arrive today at what I, would, what I believe to be, and what I believe the Bible holds out to be the centerpiece, the um, kind of the high point of Christian worship. I mean, it is, uh, in many ways, how uh, historically the Reformed tradition has defined the very nature of the church um, in terms of word and sacrament. Um, in other words, what we've come, everything else that we've done um, prior to today with regards to worship, whether we were talking about the, um, the very nature of worship itself or the call to worship, um, or last week the, um, the breath of the Christian life in terms of confessing our sins and being reminded of and receiving pardon, all of those things were preparation for, they, they were a means by getting to this fundamental end, namely that, that, um, that the word of God would be received And that we would sit and gather around this table to eat and to drink. Um, So we arrive today at what I believe to be the the center of the center of the world. (laughs) We talked week one that that, um, from the garden on, that the gathering of the people of God and the presence of God as a community um, to worship him, to bring their offerings before him, to know communion with him, um, to, to be instructed by him in all he commands and all that he is. Um, this, this is not simply an ancillary, an extra, an add-on, kind of a, a thing that should supplement your life or your Christian life, but it is um, the center and has been the center from the very, very beginning, from creation on. In other words, this is um, a central, non-negotiable, non-secondary, but a central component of what it means to be a human being. You were made to gather with other human beings in the presence of God and to worship him. So as we consider the nature of the world and all that God is up to in the world, at the center of it is worship. And at the center of Christian worship, is word and sacrament. So we come to see and hear God speak to us from this book and then eat with him at this table. But you wouldn't know it looking at the vast movements of evangelical Christianity in America. There are clever substitutes for preaching in our day. I remember sitting in on an assessment for a young pastor wanting to play at a church somewhere that I won't tell you. He didn't believe in preaching anymore. 
To which I said, excuse me? But he didn't believe it. He thought it was a complete waste of time. That anyone would stand up in a pulpit and drone on and on and on, like I do every week. This was ineffective, useless, a waste of time. No, what he wanted to facilitate, key word there, facilitate in his church, were conversations, talks. So he would stand in front of his church, who were all seated at tables. He would give a prompt every Sunday. Then they would talk at their tables about the prompt. This is much more effective, he said, than preaching. Then you have preachers stand in pulpits on a Sunday and give self-help messages. Three steps to a happy marriage. Three steps to an effective career. Three ways. It's always three, I think. If you get beyond three, five is hard. Three ways to be more courageous. Four ways to be more successful. Even saw a sermon series one time at a church in Texas. It was an entire month of sermons on sex and marriage. It wasn't like the theology of it. It wasn't what God declares about it. It was very practical. <clears throat> Stage had a bed on it. So we have clever substitutes for preaching. We have self-help messages, what you could take or get from like the Oprah Winfrey show. Is that even on anymore? The Oprah Winfrey show, what you could get there now, but in a pulpit, which isn't creepy or weird at all. Or preaching that eclipses the words of God or a vision of God with, with a kind of cleverness, a lightness, a, 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 a humor, maybe a bit about your emotional health. As family systems theory has become increasingly a popular study, it's popular because it's in many ways very useful. I don't know how many sermons I've heard about this psychological social theory. Not rooted in the Bible, not, not about the Bible, not about ultimately God, but, but about popular psychology and how to apply it to your life. Now, there's a place for good ideas. There's a place for learning practical steps to be better at your job. There, there's a place for all of these things. And I would argue it has no place here. There has been at the center of the church a loss of the glory of preaching. People try to come up with alternatives. They kind of um, twist it. They try to change it. They try to um, maybe come up with clever substitutes for the act of preaching and proclamation. And I would argue they do this because they have never heard it. They have never seen it. J.I. Packer wandered into Westminster Church 
in London, listening to the preaching of an old famous British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and, and having never heard this kind of preaching before, he describes it as it came like a shock of lightning. The sense of God's holiness was powerful, was weighty. It landed on him in that room the first time he heard him preach. It's being abandoned in our culture because it has never been seen or heard. What of communion? COVID really did a ringer on <laughs> communion. We were in a church uh, a few months ago. Um, and communion, to take communion, they had large baskets kind of all over the room and you would go up to the basket and in the basket was a little tiny, like tiny shot plastic shot glass thing. And it had grape juice in the bottom and it had what I won't even call a cracker on the top. It was more like a piece of carbon and, uh, and then when the appropriate time in the service came, everyone would pull out their little individual, tiny little shot glass, and they would peel the top and take the piece of carbon and put it in their mouth, and then they would drink the grape juice. The problem was is that I have large fingers. <laughs> and when it came time, and it was a short time, you were to open the top of the little plastic thing to get the wafer out, one, I couldn't get the plastic off. I couldn't grip it to get it off. And then once I finally did, they were already moving on to the grape juice. And I tried to get the, the carbon thing out. And it just dissolved as I touched it with my fingers. So I couldn't get it out. So then I found myself licking the top of the... <laughs> before I opened the grape juice, which was a very, very small amount of grape juice. That's weird. But then how many video services were people on their own in the living rooms? Um, I don't know how many times I heard this. I watched a lot of different church services uh, during COVID. Uh, it became a bit of a hobby. And uh, they were told like, hey, if you have wine or grape juice, that's great. But if you don't have it, like grape soda, water, Kool-Aid, whatever you have, bread, a bagel, a donut, any piece of bread-like thing that you have, come and on your own, privately in the living room, take your grape soda and your donut, which admittedly would be very sugary. Um, but these things, they're, they're a loss, a tragic loss of what is the central blessing of Christian worship. You see, preaching is... It's not meant to be a self-help seminar. It's not meant to be a theology lesson. It's not meant merely to be some sort of kind of historical analysis of a text. It's certainly not meant to be um, a kind of a, a clever conversation or anything like that. No, no the, the preaching of the word, um, this moment in the service is where we're to encounter the living and speaking God. We gather in this room um, not to just kind of walk away with three practical steps on, on how to do some things better. No, we come here to encounter God. And the corruption and the loss of preaching is a tragedy. Communion. What, what, what I 
saw or experienced, what I've seen and experienced in so many places is tragic, not, not in some sort of weird legalistic sense, but, but here's the one um, part of Christian worship in the New Testament we were given the most detail of any other thing that we're to do. Almost everything we, we else we do in Christian worship um, comes from kind of the, um, the, the, what's established in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in Jesus. Um, communion, it starts in the Old Testament, but it's ultimately we are given detailed instructions on how God intends for us to celebrate this meal and to abandon that, to treat them as a, a small thing, those instructions as unimportant. Well, that's, that's a tragedy. Jesus instituted this meal. Jesus gave commands of what we're to do when we eat and drink together in his presence. It's no mere religious symbol that we take and kind of mold into whatever form we want. It's something we've received from the very mouth of Jesus. And to treat communion as a kind of privatized experience but rather than what it is biblically. Namely, this meal in which the people of God are united with God. They feast with their God. They commune with their God. Oh, we were meant to hear God speak and experience his presence and to know the reality of who he is in the preached word. And we were to know and experience the glory of a God who feeds his people. It doesn't feed us from a distance, but actually sits with us and eats with us. The loss of these glories is a tragedy. And it is, I believe, the root of the impotence of the church. As we give up these glories for lesser ones. So, let's reclaim them. First, let's, let's talk about again worship in the temple. And how it worked. What does it mean if Paul says you are the temple of the living God, that, that, that now rather than a building in Jerusalem somewhere um, that the people have to journey to to gather in the presence of God, um, the way that it now works in the new covenant is God has established little mini temples all over the world called churches. And when those churches gather, they gather as the temple of God. And so we worship God in the ways that God has instructed us to in the temple. So um, how has this process worked and where does preaching, the reading of scripture and preaching fit? And wh- where does communion fit as we think about worship in terms of what would take place in the temple? So um, in the first week, we talked about the psalm of ascent, the call to worship. That this God invites us, you know, commands us to come before him. That the preciousness of that, and how that reshapes our whole view of God and our whole view of what we're for. And, and then we're moving from there, as you then gather in the presence of God, we talked um, that, that God has instituted three different offerings. And last week we talked about the first offering, the sin offering. Because you gather in the presence of God, you're you're aware of, you're made aware of the ways in which you've rebelled against God, you haven't obeyed God, you haven't trusted God, you haven't loved God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, you're reminded that you sinned this week. God in his kindness and his graciousness invites us to come into his presence to confess our sins and be reminded again and again and again and again He never stops forgiving our sins. 
that in and through Jesus Christ, the sin offering, our sins are forgiven. And now we come this week to to the last two offerings before we move next week into the benediction. The first of those is the burnt offering. Um, To understand the burnt offering, we need to do some thinking about what what happens um, after the garden. Because at the end of the day, going into the temple or going into the church or going into the tabernacle are are all just ways in which um, God has invited us to return to the Garden of Eden. From the very first week, we talked about the, the landscape of the world. You had the land of Eden. At the center of the land of Eden was the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was where man went to commune with God, to bring offerings to God, to worship God, to be instructed by God in his word. And so as man sins, he's kicked out of the garden. He's kicked out of communion with God. He's kicked out of fellowship with God. He's kicked out of worshiping God. And there's no way back in. And so there's no way back in because of sin. So as you think of these three offerings, think of them in terms of how do they bring us into the garden, back into fellowship and communion with God. So the sin offering deals with the problem of sin. Um, The burnt offering, if you were to go into the temple after the sin offering was offered, you would bring a burnt offering. That offering, the animal would be killed and then the animal would be laid upon the altar and set fire to, burned. Now this wasn't to just kind of show you how horrible things are. I remember of hearing teaching on the burnt offering, like, like there's some link there made to hell, um, which was a horrible connection because that's not what the burnt offering is about at all. That's not why the animal is being burned. No, the animal is being burned, the, the, the animal that represents us um, and represents co- us covenantally. In other words, where the animal goes, we go. So if you think about, um, this is true in all the offerings, the sin offering, um, the animal dies, that's um, the animal paying the penalty for your sin. And in the animal's death is your death, which is why in Jesus' death is our death. Um, the ascension offering is, um, or the burnt offering, um, is also known as the ascension offering, um, you are now present in this animal on the altar. As the altar, um, as the animal is then converted from an animal of flesh to an animal of smoke, that smoke then ascends into the presence of God. And so the centerpiece of the ascension offering, of the burnt offering, um, is that we're trying to get back into the presence of God, into communion with God. And so we have the offering of ascent. This is why the animal was burnt. As we gather in this room, as we confess what we believe, then we come to this place where we have now ascended into the presence of God. And here in in God's presence, God speaks to us. God makes himself, his character, his will, his desires known. And here we come to what I would say is the first problem. We have come here under the promise that we will be welcomed in, welcomed by God, not just to gather in this room, but to gather in his presence that we might see him. I don't know what kind of expectations you have on Sunday mornings when you come to church. Maybe you do it because you think it's the right thing to do. 
Maybe you, think, you do it because you think it's good for your family. Maybe you do it because you're curious about the nature of Christianity. I, I, I don't know. But my guess is that your expectations for a Sunday morning are far, far too low. When a Jew went to the temple, he didn't go because it was checking something off a list. At least that's not why he was supposed to go. He went to see God. He went to hear God speak. But when you come into this room, when we gather here on a Sunday morning, what do you want? We would seek God. Which presents us with our first problem. If we're to see him, where is he? Where do we encounter this God? Where do we hear this God? Where do we see and know this God? If he has so graciously welcomed us into his presence, is this all just theory so that someday we'll see him, someday we'll hear him? Or do we actually believe that this is something that happens, that should happen, that is promised to happen every single time we gather? It's a marvelous text in 1 Samuel 3, verse 21. I'd love for you to turn there. See this. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21. I'll start in verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. You see it. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. They could see him. By the word of the Lord. You see it. Chris sees it. I don't think a lot of you see it, so I'm going to say it again. The Lord appeared. Like, appeared means he could be seen. In case some of you you don't know what that means. He appeared, the Lord appeared by the word of the Lord. The Lord appeared by the word of the Lord. The Lord was seen by the word of the Lord. The design of God is that we would come and not see some corporal figure um, that is like God, not not to see um, uh, some statue of God, not to see some sort of weird light vision of who God is, but rather that we would gather in this room, that we would see God by the word of the Lord. It matters greatly what you think you should be looking for when you hear the word preached. 
Like what should you be expecting of me on a Sunday morning? What should you be expecting of any preacher on a Sunday morning? That they would stand before you and before they ever take up the cause of trying to help you have um, three steps to a better life or some practical help, although there's all kinds of practical help that comes, by the way. But before all of that and underneath all of that and guiding all of that, and at the center of what we do when we gather in this place is that you would see the Lord, that the Lord would appear here by the word of the Lord. That week after week, I or Justin or anybody else that would stand in this place would take up this book and hold out to you who God is in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his severity, that you would tremble before the horror of his wrath, that you'd be overjoyed by the magnitude of his grace, that you would be floored as you see and behold and know and love the living God. The goal of preaching is not conversations, it's not mere theological understanding, it's not mere historical understanding, it is not practical self-help or emotional comfort, it is it you would see God. That is what preaching is, that is what preaching is for. We gather here to see God, to hear God. And so the preaching of the word should be marked by this kind of gravity and glory, it should remind you of hell. It should call you to behold the cross. It should cause you to tremble before the holiness of God. To sing. To consider the grace of God. It should cause you to long and to yearn for the joys of heaven. The goal of preaching is that we would see God, hear his full counsel, receive instruction on how we're to live and what we're to be, to be a people who love him, who know him, who follow him, because we've seen him. Before we move on to communion, how does preaching change us? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. In other words, and in the context of 2 Corinthians 3, it's talking about the word, particularly at that time, the Old Testament, being read, being taught to the people of God. In other words, there's a link there in 2 Corinthians between this book being read, being taught, being proclaimed, and beholding the glory of the Lord. And it's what you're supposed to see here over everything else is the glory of God. So the way that preaching changes us is not primarily through giving us instructions, although it should. Not primarily by comforting us, although it should. But primarily that, that we look into this book and we behold the glory of God. What Paul says is that in beholding the glory of God, we are changed. We begin to become people who reflect that glory as you were created to do. So preaching changes us in the first place by beholding the glory of God and being changed 
into his likeness. And just as Paul warned us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, remember in verse 1, he said this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. He goes on to say that that, um, even those who claim to worship God will gather around themselves um, preachers and teachers that will exist to scratch itching ears. In other words, they will be there to say what brings comfort, to say um, merely what makes people feel good. And Paul also then describes um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right after this text about seeing and beholding the glory of God and the word of God. I mean, he talks about uh, that this, this word is like the aroma of death to those who are perishing. In other words, whether you like this book or not is not the measure of um, whether the preaching was good or not. But rather, we hold out Jesus as he is in this text. And to some, this smells like life. Peter says to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of life. This book will smell like life to you. But for many, this book will smell like death to them. So preaching changes us as it holds out to us a vision of God. And seeing him, we are changed into his likeness. Even if there are some who who put their fingers in their ears and they cover their eyes and, and they hate the smell of this book. Oh, that we'd be a people who love this book are being changed by this book, who see and delight in the full range of the glory of God in this book. Now, communion. Great icebreaker question. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Brady doesn't like that question. I want you to consider this. The king of all the universe, the God who made everything. It's one thing that you're invited into his throne room. You're invited into his presence. So imagine a king sitting on a throne and you, a committer of treason, a traitor, are forgiven. You're welcomed where before, if you'd have come into the room where he sat on his throne, you'd have been arrested and killed. But now he forgives you and he welcomes, isn't it enough that he would welcome you into his court so you could see him, you could listen to him speak, you could see his wisdom on display, you could hear him declaring his laws, that that would be amazing. But worship doesn't stop there. In Christian worship, this God, this king, sets a table. He puts his food on that table and he invites you by name to sit with him and to eat with him. To commune with him, to have fellowship with him. To eat bread 
and wine with him. Um, This was a unique element in Christian worship, a unique element in Judaism. You see, in all other major religions, all other world religions, um, all other even small tribal religions that surrounded the people of Israel, um, you brought sacrifices so that the gods could eat. Otherwise, they would get hungry. In other words, when you would show up for worship, you didn't show up to be fed, you showed up to feed. And hopefully you brought something that particular deity liked. If the deity liked your food, he would bless your crops, he would bless your marriage, you'd have children, he'd bless whatever the thing was. He, he wanted to bring that deity the right kind of food. So maybe the deity really likes Aunt May's cookies. Bring the cookies and you will get rich. That was how religion functioned. It's actually how most religions function. You worship to meet a need in the God you worship. But here's the unique thing about Christian worship and and worship in the temple. You would gather, you'd bring your offerings, you'd make, make your sacrifices, and then you'd be invited to sit and to eat in the peace offering. A covenant meal with the God of the universe. In other words, at the heart of what the Christianity is, is not you doing the service for God. It's not you bringing things that God needs. Um, no, he says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your food to eat. No, no. He feeds us. He sets a table and, and puts a meal on that table that we might commune with him and fellowship with him and be brought into the, the glorious joy of the presence of God. In other words, here is a God who not only reveals himself to us, not only appears to us by his word, not only speaks to us, but feeds us. He doesn't feed us by kind of like a, a food drop. No, he feeds us by setting a table and sitting with us at that table to eat a meal with us. Now, a few, few misnomers about communion. Um, I have been around, have actually facilitated as a pastor, horrible practice of believing that, that when we come to this table for bread and wine, it's supposed to be this solemn grave meditation on a reminder of your sin. Have you ever done that with communion? Come to the table and the goal of the table is to be really sad. You're not supposed to drink wine when you're sad, by the way. Love this quote from Peter Lightheart. His book called Theopolitan Vision, which is available in the back and it's marvelous. The table is well, a table. Bread is food and wine is a festive drink. Nowhere in the Bible do people gather at a table to mourn their sins. If God wanted us to mourn our sins, he would have commanded a weekly fast, not a weekly feast. 
Tables are for eating, drinking, and rejoicing. In Israel, the sanctuary was a place of joy where Israel could eat, drink, and rejoice. If we celebrate the Lord's Supper as it ought to be celebrated, every Lord's Day will be a day of gladness and every worship service will be a journey into joy. This table, when we gather in just a minute for bread and wine, is not there for you to be sad. It's not there for you to mourn. It is is there for you to rejoice. The God of the universe eats with you. He's forgiven your sins. He's renamed you. He's called you to himself. When we eat bread and drink wine, it is to be marked by joy, by festivity, by the glory that that the God of the universe loves you. He sings over you. He's conquered sin and death, and he sits with us in a victory meal. So first, communion is about celebration. It's about festivity. It is about joy. Two, communion is about union. Um, just as in all of the offerings, you're united with um, the, the, the sacrifices, with the offering themselves, um, so with communion. Um, it is called the body and the blood of Jesus because we feast on the meal that has been provided. We are united to the body and the blood of Jesus. And so we are changed. As we become those who are living sacrifices to God, becoming what we eat. Sacrifices um, given for, for the glory of God and the transformation and renewal of all things. In the body and the blood of Jesus, we are put to death and we are raised. In the body and the blood of Jesus, we become those who daily die and daily are raised, who spend our lives for the glory of God and the good of those around us. So second, first, it's, it's a meal of celebration, of festive joy. Two, it is a union that transforms with Jesus. And third, it's a memorial, a reminder. Um, I, I grew up in a church in which we would talk about um, communion as a memorial, the Lord's Supper as a memorial, but it was a memorial for us. It was added to the solemnity of the meal. So, so it was all about us being reminded of the death of Jesus. That the whole goal of communion uh, was not ultimately union. It wasn't absolutely, it was not joy. Um, it was about this solemn remembrance, this weighty remembrance that Jesus died for us. But that's not how that word functioned in the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, the, the word memoria, um, it describes the act by which the, the priests, after um, the, the sacrifice was killed, would take blood and wipe it on the altar. And was wiped on the altar, not primarily as a reminder to the worshipers. They, they just saw the animal killed. But rather, it was a memorial. It was placed on the altar as a memorial, a reminder um, that this constant declaration and the presence of God of his covenant promises. In other words, the goal of the offering, the goal of the memorial, the goal of the remembrance... It was to place at the very center of the presence of God, in the very throne room of God, this constant reminder um, that he would forgive sins, that he would conquer death, that he would redeem his people, that he would flood the earth with righteousness and goodness and blessing. So we gather at this table as memorial. 
in the presence of God such that at the center of the throne room of God forever and ever and ever and ever, never ending, at the center of it is the body and the blood of the Lamb who was slain. A constant declaration in the presence of myriads of angels and all the saints from all the ages, including right now our own, that God has made promises, that he sealed those promises and purchased those promises in the body and the blood of Jesus, and he will be faithful. We eat this meal to celebrate the victory of God, to be united with the body and the blood of Jesus. And to remind our God that he has promises to keep. He's made them and they've been paid for. Let's pray and prepare for this meal. Oh God, what a thing. What a thing that you would speak to us, that you would minister to us. That you would reveal yourself to us and then... Not reject us, not send us away, not keep us at a distance or or command us to bring you food because you're hungry. Rather, you open up a ballroom and there at the table is a feast set for us, a feast that you've provided in the very body and the blood of Jesus. Teach us the meaning of deep joy. Not trite happiness, how to have a solemn joy, a weighty joy, but joy as we share this meal together as your people in your presence because you have commanded it and offered it and given it. In your name we pray, amen.